going to turn now to our scripture lesson for the sermon this morning as we continue our study of 1 Corinthians. We come to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11 this morning. This is God's holy word as he gave to the Apostle Paul to write to the church at Corinth. So we know that because it is inspired by God, it is therefore without error as it was given to the Apostle And so we can trust that we are reading the very word of the living God. Again, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. This ends the reading of God's holy word for us at this time. May he bless its reading and its exposition and its hearing this morning. You might have noticed, if you've paid attention to the news in the last few years, almost suddenly coming upon us, particularly in the last few years, that questions of identity are rather prevalent in the culture around us today. You'd have to be living under a rock not to have noticed that. In fact, these questions of identity are so prevalent that many professing Christians will go so far as to identify themselves with a particular behavior or set of behaviors which God's Word tells us are plainly sinful. But such people want to be what we might call hyphenated Christians. They'll say, I am a gay hyphen Christian, or nowadays a trans hyphen Christian. These are the popular sins in our society, which our culture demands that we must accept, that we must affirm. is isn't good enough just to tolerate that your neighbor might be doing something like this, but you have to affirm that it's good. And they want the church to declare these things not to be sins. But Paul tells us that the true Christian identity, that a true Christian's identity is in Christ Jesus, full stop. And we're not talking here about things that might be secondary to our identity, like what your job is or something like that. But we're talking about who you really are within yourself, not whether you're a teacher or a lawyer or whether you're a mother or a son. But we're talking about who who you are in your core identity. If you are in Christ, that is your identity. That is who you are. We have to leave especially sinful things, behind. Indeed, clinging to such things is a great indicator that a person is, at the very least, extremely immature in their Christian walk, but probably not actually born again. And so for those who have been born again, Paul says they must eschew such behaviors. They have to reject those kinds of behaviors, flee from them, Fight against them within yourself when you have the temptation to engage in these behaviors. 
Christians must certainly not seek to identify ourselves by the things that God has declared to be against his law. The things he calls sin. So today I'm going to deal with the Christian's identity as a person who is washed, sanctified, and justified, as Paul says in this passage. But first we'll examine what Christ's Apostle Paul has to say about some ways that Christians must not identify themselves. How is a Christian not to identify himself or herself? You'll recall from last week that Paul was handling a problem in the Corinthian church which involved disputes between Christians being taken before unbelieving civil magistrates. So a couple of Christians or groups of Christians in the church would have some kind of dispute among themselves, and instead of settling it within the church, they were going to the civil government, to the judges of the civil courts, and uh, asking the unrighteous, as Paul says, to settle these things. Paul says, do you not have anyone wise among you who could handle this? In verse 8, he declares, no, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. We noted last time about how that particularly applies as, as cheating our brethren out of the opportunity for repentance when we fail to deal with things within the church uh, by church discipline. Well, Paul now shows how serious a matter this is by showing that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who cling to such unrighteousness might be revealing themselves never to have been converted in the first place. Even if they have been converted, according to what we learned in chapter 5, we know that we have to treat the one who is unrepentant and refusing to hear the counsel of the church as if he is a heathen and an outsider in the hope that he will repent and be restored. But certainly for the time being, he is to be treated as an outsider. True believers who engage in a lifestyle... As we'll see here, it's not talking about a stumbling, a temporary stumbling, but a lifestyle of sin are choosing to identify with something that actually dishonors Christ. Something that he died that you could be forgiven of. And how ungrateful is it to embrace those things that demanded God's wrath to the point that his own son died for them. The Christian's identity must be in Christ and not with the sins that he died for. Paul says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's something that Paul expected to be something he shouldn't even have to say to the Corinthians. Do you not know this? It goes without saying, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. The Apostle John tells us in 1 John 3, 6-10, Whoever abides in him, whoever abides in Jesus, he's talking about, does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Now I should stop there and note that the verb tense that he's using is talking about an ongoing action. So when he says whoever sins, he's talking about those who keep sinning. In fact, some translations will say things like he who keeps on sinning. So when you are, he's talking about living a sinful lifestyle here. When you embrace a sin 
and you keep on doing it. That's the kind of thing that John is talking about here. And he says, much as Paul does in this passage we just read, let no one deceive you. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he, that is God, is righteous, or Christ is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him. And he cannot sin, because he has been born of God. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. So again, we note that the verb tense in the Greek for those verbs about sinning there have to do with an ongoing practice. So we're not talking, uh, John is not saying there that if you uh, continue to find yourself once in a while stumbling in sin in your Christian walk, you aren't really a Christian. So today uh, you got uh, sinfully angry with someone, an outburst of anger, and yesterday you, you had a moment of lust. Well, you must not be a Christian then. No, that's not what John is saying. He's saying when you give in to these things as an ongoing lifestyle, that's an indication that you're actually not born again. So he's saying that one who is truly of God is not going to engage in an ongoing lifestyle of sinfulness, of the things that God has declared to be against his righteousness. John says that those who engage in a lifestyle of ongoing sin are not truly of God. They are not really Christ's people. Paul says the same thing here in this passage in 1 Corinthians 6, when he says the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul, like John, says, do not be deceived. Paul says, or John says, let no one deceive you. Here Paul says, do not be deceived. Literally, do not be led astray. To engage in the ongoing practice of a sin. To be identified with that sin because you continue in it. Instead of with Christ alone. Is to be exposed as one who is not going to inherit the kingdom of God. It means that person is outside of Christ, not identified with him. So there's no way you can identify with a sin and with Christ. You're either identified with Christ or you're identified with the sin. If you're identified with the sin, you're therefore still in your sins and destined to be cast away from God's merciful presence unless you repent and are trusting in Christ. And then Paul gives a list of some of the kinds of sins and sinful lifestyles prevalent in the Corinthian culture, the culture of the city of Corinth. And it's sad that we have to note that many of these things are again prevalent in our culture today, much as they were in Corinth in the first century. The ongoing practice of any of those sins is a clear indicator that a person's identity is not truly in Christ, that his identity is with the sin, not with his Savior. He or she will not inherit the kingdom of God if that person engages unrepentantly in these kinds of practices. Let's consider briefly each 
sinful identity that he mentions here. And notice he doesn't just name a sin or some sins that God condemns, but he's also talking here about the label. Notice it, it isn't adultery, it's the adulterer that he's talking about here. It's the label of the person who is identified with and by that sin. A person engaged so much in the ongoing practice of a sin that it is an essential part of his identity now or can be seen as a significant aspect of his identity that that he could be named by it. The way we say a man is a procrastinator. Why? Because he procrastinates all the time. Saw a sign somewhere that said a procrastinator's convention had been postponed. You know, a woman who's a thinker, right? Why? Why would you call that woman a thinker? Well, because she thinks a lot, and she's known for that. Or maybe somebody's a worrier. We've all had people in our lives who we know are worriers. Why? Because they worry a lot. <clears throat> so we would call them that. Well, here are the things that Paul mentions here. Fornicators, first. It's a general term for those involved in sexual immorality of any kind, but especially what in our culture would be called premarital relations. Idolaters, those who worship false gods or who falsely worship the true God. Adulterers, the plainest meaning of that, well actually we'll be dealing with the seventh commandment this evening, Lord willing, as we're going through the ten commandments. The plainest meaning, the most basic meaning, is that married individuals who are unfaithful to their spouses. Then he mentions homosexuals. Literally, the, the Hebrew term, excuse me, Greek, in the New Testament, the Greek term literally is soft ones. The King James Version translates it as effeminate. But the term refers not just to a man that some might think is less manly than other men, but to a man who takes a traditionally feminine role in a relationship with another man. That's actually what the term meant in the first century Greek. It can include men who dress as or claim to be women, like we have becoming more prevalent in our own culture. The next term translated here is sodomites. The Greek term literally means a man who goes to bed with another man. That's literally what the term actually means at its root. Not in the benign sense. You had to share a bed in a hotel room because there weren't any extra ones or anything, but it's referring to a carnal relationship here. Now we should note there are some today who have claimed that these terms are speaking only of abusive relationships in which a grown man would have a boy or a young man often as a slave and the master would force himself on the servant. The the younger man or the servant had no choice in the matter, was powerless to resist. That interpretation is seriously flawed. Paul says such people will not inherit the kingdom of God. And the the argument here is that that one of these, the soft ones, is the victim, and the other is the perpetrator. You don't have to think very long about that before you see the flaw in that logic, do you? Such people, as Paul is talking about here, are condemned by God for the lifestyles that Paul is listing. So if the interpretation which claims that Paul is talking about abusive relationships is actually correct, 
then Paul would be saying that both the abuser and his victim are condemned by God. Now that's a blasphemous accusation to level against the Lord, isn't it? Nowhere in Scripture does God ever condemn people for sins committed against them. Could you imagine God saying, I condemn the thief and the person he stole from? No way. God would not condemn a thief for stealing and also the victim whom he stole from. As he plainly says numerous times in the Old Testament, each one will die for his own sins. God condemns abusers, not their victims. So that interpretation is nonsense. We have to reject that, just throw that in the garbage can. Uh, God's word is telling us here that whatever role a person takes in a relationship, homosexual activity is sin. And to engage in it unrepentantly, to identify yourself with it, is to be outside of God's kingdom. There's no such thing as a gay Christian. There are Christians who have engaged in these sins, absolutely. But there's no true Christian who has such an identity. No true Christian continues unrepentantly in these sins. There are Christians who are tempted to any one of the sins that we're mentioning here. And if the list were longer, we'd have to include all of ourselves and say, we're tempted to these sins. But somebody who is in Christ has an identity in Christ and not with the former sin. Next, Paul mentions thieves, people who steal the property of others. It's pretty plain. Then the covetous, those who desire what is rightfully someone else's. To clarify, it's not covetousness is not seeing another person's car or smartphone and thinking, well, that has some qualities I would find useful in my life. Therefore, I, the next time I shop for a smartphone or for a car, I'm going to look for things like that. But it's the illicit desire for something that doesn't actually belong to you. It's not just that I want a house like that guy's house. I want that guy's house. Or as we consider that the Tenth Commandment begins by talking about your neighbor's wife. It's it's not just, I want a wife like that, or a woman saying, I want a husband like that. It's saying, I want that woman's husband. I want that man's wife. That's covetousness. Paul includes that here as an example. The kind of thing that when we give into, if we're identified with, we're not going to inherit the kingdom of heaven. Drunkards, that's pretty plain, those who get drunk. The surrendering of one's judgment, again, this is talking about a lifestyle, not the one day you drank too much, right? It's talking about a lifestyle. This, the continual surrendering of one's judgment or inhibitions or other mental faculties by overindulging in alcohol or recreational drug use, we could add to that, that's strictly condemned in God's word. Next, he mentions revilers, people who speak disrespectfully of others, uh, people who destroy with their speech, those especially who blaspheme Christ or who spread slander and so on. Those, those would be included in this term for revilers. Also, extortioners. That's a less direct form of theft than what he mentions with thieves before. 
People who swindle or blackmail others. Perhaps even embezzlement of funds could be included in this. The people who continue in the kinds of practices that Paul lists here, the people who have these sins as a part of their identity, so you could be called a thief, not somebody who just happened to have stolen something a long time ago, but a, an ongoing thief. Paul says, such people will not inherit the kingdom of God. If it is part of your identity and you are therefore unrighteous, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. But pay close attention to what he says next. We could get pretty discouraged if we start noting, well, I've done something like this in the past. Or, well, <clears throat> At the beginning of verse 11, he says, And such were some of you. It's past tense. If he had extended the list of sins and sinful identities, he could have said, and such were all of you. But there's a difference for somebody who's in Christ. Some of the Corinthian Christians had been fornicators. Probably uh, lots of them had been idolaters. Most of them had been pagans prior to this. Some had been adulterers or homosexuals or the other things that are in this list. But, Paul says... There's a difference. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. We'll get to that, the meaning of those terms in a minute here, but that's a big but. But you were washed, Paul says. You were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Notice several things about that statement. For one thing, it is God who's doing it. God washed you. God sanctified you. God justified you if your faith is in Christ. God the Holy Spirit has washed, sanctified, and justified believers. This is His work, and so it's a perfect work. It's not like you were washed a little bit. Your feet are clean, but your thighs aren't, or something like that. No, your whole person is clean. It's God's perfect work. For another thing we see... That He does this in the name, the Holy Spirit does this in the name of the Lord Jesus. That's a way of saying that it's by Christ's authority, because of His accomplished work. Jesus bore your sins on the cross, Paul is saying, therefore the penalty is paid for them. And so the Holy Spirit can apply these things, this washing and this sanctification and this justification to you in the name of Jesus, because Jesus has already dealt with it. And for a third thing, we also note that Paul uses the possessive pronoun here. He is our God. Paul's talking here to those who truly worship the true God. Well, now let's consider what he actually says God has done. First, he says God has washed Christians. In Titus 3.5, Paul writes, According to his mercy, he has saved us. Through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. So the washing that the Holy Spirit does, in other words, is regeneration. To cause a person to be born again. The Holy Spirit causes a person to be born again. And that is considered a washing. Paul says, washed here to emphasize, of course, the cleansing aspect of the new birth. 
It makes you a new person. You're, you were a person who was dirty in your sins, dressed in, as Isaiah says, filthy rags, trying to stand by your own righteousness before God, but God has cleansed you. He's clothed you in the perfect righteousness of Jesus. So the Holy Spirit has cleansed each believer of his or her sins. So those sins cannot dominate you now. They must not dominate you. And you must not identify with them, Paul says. In essence, he's saying you you may have been a fornicator or an idolater or one of these other things, but the Holy Spirit has caused you now to be born to a new life. He's cleansed you from your sins, since Jesus has earned that cleansing for you. And so you are no longer identified with your former sins. And so you must no longer do them. Paul also says you were sanctified. So you were washed, you were also sanctified. So number two, God has sanctified Christians. Sanctification has an immediate aspect and a progressive aspect. We most often focus on its progressive aspect, but Paul puts it here before justification means he's probably focusing on the immediate aspect. If you are born again at the time of your regeneration, you were sanctified. You were made holy. That's what the word means. You were set apart from the world unto God. From that proceeds the fact that the Holy Spirit ongoingly works within you. He continues to work within the person who is born again, manifesting that holiness more and more over time. In other words, you will become more obviously righteous like Jesus. You'll look more like Christ over time. If you've been set apart apart from the fallen world and its wicked ways, Paul is asking the rhetorical question here, why then, or he's implying the question, why act as if you were still part of that wicked world? Why act as if you were still under those sins by practicing the very things that are no longer your identity? The wickedness for which God has condemned the world. You were sanctified. You were set apart. You're something else. You're something new. Then Paul says you were justified. So three, God justifies Christians. To be justified is to be counted righteous. When Christ paid the penalty for your sins, you are counted as not guilty of them any longer. In the name of the Lord Jesus, because of his accomplished work by his authority, believers are counted as righteous before God, Paul says here. Worthy of being in God's kingdom. Of ourselves we're not, but because of Christ we are. And the Holy Spirit applies that that justification to believers. He brings a person to life in Christ, granting a new heart which believes, and by that faith the believer is justified. Ephesians 2.8, by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. If the Lord no longer counts your sins against you by this free, unmerited gift, how ungrateful is it to continue in the sins which so displeased God that Jesus had to die for them? 
But you, Christian, have been washed, Paul says. You have been sanctified. You have been justified. Therefore, your identity is in and with Christ, not in and with your former sins. So there is no such thing as a hyphenated Christian. Either your identity is in Christ or it's not. You must not pick your favorite sin and identify with it and then say, I'm that thing hyphen a Christian. There are no gay Christians, though there are Christians who have been tempted to those sins. There are no transgender Christians, though there may be some who've been tempted in that direction and maybe formerly lived a lifestyle like that. But this has to be left behind when we're in Christ. There are no of these hyphenated Christians any more than there is an idolater Christian or a thief Christian. A Christian may stumble in his or her walk and commit such a sin as Paul names here, but no true Christian engages in an ongoing lifestyle of these things to such an extent that it could be labeled as part of your identity. Certainly no true Christian can claim that God approves of these things or that any of these things God has condemned are not actually sins. A true believer is identified with Christ, not with sin. He or she has been washed, sanctified, and justified. So God's command for his people is forsake your former sins. Be ever ready to combat any of these tendencies or temptations if you find them rising up within yourself. Recognize that your identity is in Christ now, and so act like it. You have been washed, you have been sanctified, you have been justified. Let's pray. Lord, let us not identify with our former sins or with any wicked lifestyle that the world would tempt us to embrace, but teach us rather to forsake sin and to have our identity only in Christ Jesus, as we know that we are his people whom he has called out of the world, And as he said in his great high priestly prayer that we are in the world, but we are not to be of the world. We pray that we would manifest that spiritual reality more and more as we learn to die into sin and live unto righteousness. And as your Holy Spirit sanctifies us that we might be seen to be your people by others and be assured within ourselves that we belong to Christ Jesus. For we pray these things in his name. Amen.